I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today was high school teammates of Theo Epstein in Brookline, Massachusetts. Sam Kennedy's career has exploded. Having grown up in the area, he currently is the CEO of two of the most iconic sports brands in the world, the Boston Red Sox and the Liverpool Football Club. Red Sox have won World Series. Liverpool has won the Premier League and the Champions League, all living in his hometown. An incredible human being who values relationships, mentoring people, and giving the fans a unique experience. Our guest, Sam Kennedy. Welcome, friends. In this turbulent environment, with COVID hopefully behind us and the George Floyd Memorial Day tragedy, we have a leader that has the human touch. Sam Kennedy's ability to build relationships, to be empathetic, to be compassionate and develop people is unparalleled in this world. Uh, we welcome you, Sam, and I'm really glad you could take time to kind of share your journey with us today. Jed, thank you for that kind introduction, and it's always great to be with you, my friend. Great to see you. Growing up with an Episcopalian father, in terms of how that influenced you and how you got into sports, let's talk a little bit about that. You have uh, met my father, and I'm uh, thrilled about that. You've had a chance to spend some time together at Fenway Park. And I grew up at Fenway Park, uh, blessed with an Episcopal priest as a father. Everyone, you know, there's always this question about how could your last name be Kennedy? You're from Boston, and your dad is a priest? I don't quite get that, but he's Episcopalian. He uh, was the associate rector at Trinity Church in Copley Square for a long time and then became the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. And one of the only perks of the job uh, was a clergy pass, which allowed him and a guest to go to games at Fenway Park for free. Uh, you didn't get any seats, but you could stand at Fenway and go to games and so I learned this at about six or seven years old and was famous for sneaking that clergy pass out of his wallet. And we lived about a mile. We lived in the South End uh, and then about a mile down the road later in Brookline Village. And so got to go to 30, 40, 50 Red Sox games a year as a kid, mostly with my dad until I got to know the uh, the guys at the gate, and then they'd let me bring a friend in on his clergy pass. So I grew up at Fenway and always had a special connection uh, with my father around baseball 
and taking care of people as a as an Episcopal priest. That was his focus, was helping others. And so how do you pick Trinity? And how do you get involved in hockey and baseball? How, do, how does that come about? And you mentioned your interest and passion, but how does the playing side come? Well, I was um, a very, uh, probably like a lot of sports executives, a very average to below average athlete myself. Uh, but I was passionate about playing baseball and, and ice hockey growing up in Boston, a huge sports fan. And I went to Trinity College in Hartford, with the idea that I could play baseball. I, I knew I couldn't play ice hockey there, but I uh, called the coach and usually coaches recruit the players. I was trying to recruit the coach uh, and convince him that I might be a, uh, a member of his bullpen. He was kind enough, Coach Bill Decker, who's now the head coach at Harvard, was kind enough to uh, call my high school coach. And they said, look, if you get your SATs and your grades to a certain level, we'll have a spot for you on the baseball team. And, it was just a thrill to be able to participate, even at the Division Three level, because it loved being a part of a team. And that really is what made me determine that as soon as I knew my playing days would be over, that I'd like to try and get into sports as a career, uh, given the team element of working with others and, and achieving the, the successes together. And of course, the many, many failures that come along. You began in sales. Uh, and then had the opportunity to go west. Talk a little bit about that early introduction into uh, the sports media world. Well, I had so many uh, mentors, incredible people along the way. I, while I was at Trinity, I, I this just makes me feel a little bit old, but it was pre-internet, Jed, and pre-email um, and, and texting. And so uh, I wrote uh, letters uh, to all of the different baseball teams, presidents, general managers, owners, was blessed to secure a summer internship in 1993 with the New York Yankees. And truly, truly, that was my, my big break. And the first day I went into Yankee Stadium in June of 1993, it was the first time I had ever been into a sports venue with no fans. That image is burnished in my brain. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of this industry. So I interned there for couple of summers, kept uh, begging them to come back, um, was not able to get a full-time job there, uh, but I was able to get a full-time job selling their radio broadcast at WABC in New York. Did that for about a year, was recruited to go over to WFAN in New York with my sales manager, a great guy named Dan Lynch, who's now at the New York Football Giants. And then in, in 1996, I was recruited by the great Larry Lucchino, I know a longtime friend and partner and colleague of yours who recruited me and, and Theo Epstein uh, at the same time to go out to San Diego to work in the business and the baseball operation for the Padres. And that was an incredible experience. And that's really what launched my baseball career. Well, you and Theo went to high school together. So it was kind of like reuniting you together. It, we did. Theo had um, been fortunate while he was at Yale to secure an internship for working for Larry Lucchino. Um, he had written a paper on the Negro Leagues, which he sent unsolicited to Larry. And Larry was so impressed uh, by Theo's work. Uh, and this is so Larry Lucchino. You know, he didn't know him, but he read this paper and he reached out and recruited him into the organization and brought him into the Orioles. 
at the time I had been brought into the Yankees. And then uh, Theo and I stayed in touch and Theo introduced me to Larry and, and, and that's where the opportunity happened. And we both moved West and had a chance to be a part of a, a renaissance in baseball with the great Kevin Towers, God rest his soul, uh, who was our general manager at the time. And for me, it was a chance to work uh, not only in the front office on the business side of the Padres, uh, but on a campaign for a publicly fu uh, funded ballpark, which ultimately opened uh, in 2004 and became Petco Park. We left before it uh, it opened because Larry called us literally in the middle of the night uh, one day in, in July of 2001 and said, hey, guys, come over to my house tomorrow. And he told us uh, that he had been working with John Henry and Tom Warner to try and buy the Boston Red Sox and New England Sports Network. And Theo and I looked at each other and said, this is, as much as we love San Diego, this is a dream come true. And so we had a chance to come back home uh, at the end of 2001. And of course, he and others have left and I've stayed here uh, the entire time. And it, it's, been a, it's been a great run here in Boston. I mean, you talk about how you've moved up throughout the organization and you have a, uh, a, a fellow peer in Jay Monahan that used to work with you that now is the commissioner of the uh, PGA. Uh, it, the development of uh, individuals within your organization is incredible. I mean, what Larry began and what you've continued is really, really unique. Well, Jed, you, you know better than anyone the most important thing in the, in the sports business, and I'm sure in any business, is the power of mentorship and actually developing, uh, retaining key executives, but also recognizing when it's time for executives to move on and take that next step, whether it's going back to business school, law school, or going to another organization. So many of us learned that from Larry Lucchino as an incredible mentor. Um, I've been blessed not only working for Larry, but having incredible peer mentorships. You know, people like Jay Monahan, who worked with us here uh, at Fenway Sports Group in our golf business. Uh, Billy Hogan, who's now the CEO of Liverpool Football Club. Of course, I mentioned Theo Epstein. Mike Hazen, Ben Sherrington, um, the list goes on and on. Other executives, Todd Lywicki, uh, you know, you just think of so many people in the sports business that we've been touched by. Um, Ann Finucan is another example outside of sports, but in the, in the financial services industry. Early on in my career, I did everything I, I could to uh, learn and grow and connect with people because you just learn so much from their experiences and you take their wisdom and then apply it to challenges that you're facing in your own job. And, and the ability to watch and listen and learn from people who have gone before you, I think is the most powerful thing uh, for anyone getting into business. And this pandemic, I think, has really reinforced that for me, not being able to have that physical connectivity with each other, the creativity, the innovation, of being in the office together and solving problems, tackling challenges. It, it, we have sorely missed it in the sports business, and we're so excited there's light at the end of the tunnel here. Help our audience understand what it all is that encompasses Fenway sports. Sure. Uh, people are going to be mind-boggled that here you are winning, whether it's a World Series or whether it's the Premier League or the Champions League with Liverpool. You span the globe. 
We, we do. We're, we're very fortunate. We have uh, 24 partners uh, in our group, in Fenway Sports Group, 24 investors that range from our principal owner, uh, John Henry, uh, our chairman, Tom Werner, our president, Michael Gordon, uh, and then all the way to someone like LeBron James and Maverick, Par- uh, Maverick Carter, who are partners in our venture. It's a great group very well capitalized. We, of course, started with the Red Sox, Fenway Park, and the real estate that we acquired as part of the original deal back in 2001, 2002. It was a, about a $700 million transaction, roughly $450 million of equity, $250 million of debt. And we've grown over these 20 years to acquire uh, an interest in a NASCAR team, uh, a control interest, 100% interest in Liverpool Football Club. Um, of course, we have our media holding with Nesson. So if you look at us like a stock portfolio, um, we have a, a, about a $7.5 billion market cap. We just did a private equity transaction that values our business in that range. We have uh, interest in Major League Baseball, in NASCAR and auto racing and real estate and English soccer. And we're growing uh, into other sports now. We've made the decision as a group after 20 years, we're entering a phase that I call Fenway 3.0, imagining and dreaming what might be next. New teams, new venues, new opportunities in the sports and the content uh, business and space. We'll see if we end up uh, pursuing a, a path towards uh, a public offering someday that, that, that may or may not happen. But we are very, very focused on growth and adding equity value for our partnership. We're very, very bullish on the sports content IP business. And the great thing about John and Tom and Mike, who are our, our day-to-day leaders, is that they understand at the core winning drives everything. So winning and investing in our products on the field, on the court, on the on the pitch uh, is really, really critical. Uh, and that's been the overarching philosophy is that if you win and you have the right people in the right positions, you can create a great business as well. Well, I mean, you've had to do that in several instances. I mean, Peter Moore, I can remember introducing him to John Henry and they kind of got it on with video games. Then years later, the native of Liverpool decides to leave the EA Sports and join your organization. Yes, we're forever grateful to you for for connecting us with Peter and and, and what a great job he did. And he brought that experience, to your point, from from EA uh, over to the sports uh, landscape and really oversaw Liverpool Football Club during a period of time that was a true renaissance for a global asset, a global club uh, like Liverpool with uh, winning the league, winning Champions League, uh, renovate, building the new main stand. Uh, it, it just was a magical period. I think that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. You know, blue chip properties are a focus of ours, but you cannot have success with blue chip properties without blue chip people. And that's that's a focus of ours as well, making sure we have the right the right people in the right positions. And you just made a, a, a huge hire several years ago, bringing Heim Bloom in out of Tampa and helping him to kind of uh, reorganize your baseball. Talk a little bit about that reorganization has been and the fact that you've been able this year to kind of 
get it moving maybe quicker than anticipated. Well, we, we, it was an interesting uh, dynamic. We've, we've been th- uh, here for 20 years and had incredible stability at ownership in the business operations. On the baseball side, we've had uh, four or five uh, general managers, leaders. And when we made a change in 2019, uh, after Dave Dombrowski, who, by the way, did an incredible job for us, uh, we parted ways with Dave in September and we were very committed uh, actually to going internal. And we ran a, a, an internal uh, process. And through that process, there was some consistent feedback from our own people that maybe we could benefit from an outside perspective and voice because we've all been here together for so long. Incredible maturity, really, that came from our own baseball operations executives, the men and women in that department. And we had long admired Tampa, just given what they'd done in our division. And Hyam uh, was the number two executive there. Uh, he was the only external candidate we talked to. Uh, we targeted him and, and we actually had to convince him uh, to come to Boston, given his uh, how happy he was uh, in Tampa. We're grateful to Stu and, and Matt for the op- and Eric for the opportunity to, to interview him. And he has uh, exceeded our wildest expectations, um, not just what he's done in terms of the moves he's made. He came in, you, know, you mentioned the pandemic. You mentioned the racial uh, reckoning that we're going through in the country, very important time with many, many social justice issues. Hyam has a real empathy, compassion, understanding, uh, and cares deeply about those issues. So leading the baseball operations department during this time, he has really fit like a glove. And we had a big decision to make on whether or not to bring Alex Cora back after his suspension. And Hyam and I worked very closely on that. And had lots of late nights discussing that. Um, and ultimately, we made the decision to bring Alex back. Um, and, and, and we're so glad uh, that he and, and Haim are now having the chance to work together. He's been, been terrific. And, you know, he, even though he was a classics major at Yale, he's still a pretty smart guy. So when you think about, you know, the managers, uh, and you've had, again, whether it's Tito or or a variety, or whether it's uh, and now uh, Korea, you think in today's world makes a really successful manager? It's a great question. And and I think we've seen a, a pretty dramatic change. I, I go all the way back to the early 1990s with the New York Yankees when we had Buck Showalter into Joe Torre. And then my time in San Diego uh, was, we, we had Bruce Bochy as our manager the whole time. Coming to Boston, we hired hired Tito Francona, then John Farrell. We had Bobby Valentine, and then, of course, Alex uh, came in in 2018. I do think uh, things have changed uh, in terms of the leadership role in uniform. I can only speak for uh, baseball and English football. That's what I'm most close to. Um, in baseball specifically, I think we've seen a transition from uh, the authoritarian type, sort of my way or the highway, with lots of rigid rules and policies and procedures to stick by, um, to a shift of more of um, uh, relatability to players, connectivity. Um, you know, obviously our, our roster, people know who's in charge, but Alex is very much a friend and a 
and a shoulder to cry on and, and a cheerleader for these guys. Um, they have such our player. The reason uh, we were confident and excited about bringing him back is while he was out for that year, it was so evident how much they missed his presence in that clubhouse. Um, and that's a special, special thing. It speaks to quality that, you know, our mutual friend, Mark Shapiro, and I talk about all the time, which is authenticity. Uh, Alex is just uh, as real as it gets. He tells it like it is. He's very honest with our players, gives them direct feedback, but he also keeps them very positive. Baseball is a game you ha- you can only have success if you're having fun while you're playing. And it's a hard sport to have fun playing because there's so much failure associated with our sport uh, and to keep guys uh, loose, relaxed, and enjoying playing baseball uh, has been his secret sauce so far. So we certainly hope that that continues. So when you look at the trends in baseball as it relates to the, the amount of hits, the strikeouts, uh, and then the fact you've got a labor issue, you know, dead ahead, uh, what do you see as some of the remedies to what's going on uh, that could help baseball be more attractive to the, the younger fan? Yeah, it's a great question and something that we're spending a lot of time as an industry focused on. We had our owners meetings uh, recently in New York City and Commissioner Manfred gave uh, a a very comprehensive and detailed overview about some of the things that are happening in the game and some strategies and ideas uh, to, to fix them. Rob has engaged with Theo Epstein, uh, our former colleague, who is just the absolute right person to help the Major League Baseball think through some of these issues. Theo's talked a lot about this, um, and, and it's no surprise. Baseball needs to find uh, what what he refers to as the best version of itself. You know, we, we are seeing the obvious, right? Right, historic strikeout rates, twenty five percent strikeout rate uh, across the league. That's sort of Nolan Ryan, Sandy Koufax level. And that's the average pitcher in Major League Baseball. We're seeing on average 25% of the time people striking out. And that leads to sort of these three true outcomes of strikeouts, a walk, or a home run. Our fans through surveying and information want to see more doubles, more triples, more stolen bases. Um, So we're trying to come up in partnership with the players uh, a, a way to create and add some more balls in play, some more offense, some more excitement around the sport that we all grew up with. The great news is baseball is still the greatest game on, on the planet, greatest game ever invented. I just think we need to get get back to some of the elements of the game that, that really create excitement, number one. And number two, we've got to focus on the pace of the game. You know, we used to be about a two-hour, two 15-minute, two-and-a-half-hour product. We're now up over three hours, three hours and nine, 10 minutes. That's just too long. And a lot of the dead time between pitches and between action uh, contributes to that. So that's what we're focused on. To answer your question directly, we have to do that in partnership with our players and and together work uh, as a a unit to take the industry forward, especially as we're coming out of COVID, which has been just a, a devastating time for our industry and our business. So lots and lots of challenges. But the underlying uh, element of baseball, I think, is something that the country still responds very, very well to. We're back at 100% capacity at Fenway Park, for example, and we've seen crowds already coming back, even with some hesitation. The vaccines are just 
now being widely distributed. And so I think if we do the right things in partnership with the players as part of bargaining, we can get to a place where baseball has a significant resurgence. When we talk about the labor issue, how optimistic are you that that'll be able to to happen in a positive way and not a uh, a lockout? You know me, Jed. I am the eternal optimist, so I have a very biased view. But I am uh, I'm so uh, confident uh, in uh, Major League Baseball and in Rob Manfred and Dan Halem and, and Morgan Sword and, and the group uh, on the Avenue of the Americas. And obviously, Tony Clark's leadership and, and the union, hopefully, they will all sort of pull together uh, and come to a place where we, where we make an agreement and we go forward. Um, that's what everybody wants. And I'm, I am optimistic. Uh, our game is just now recovering. Uh, and it will be a long road back given the pandemic. Uh, so I'm very, very hopeful that we, we make an agreement. Uh, and I know that that's what both sides are, are committed to. It's interesting. When you think about your fans and the fans in Liverpool, what are the lessons when you think about you know, how the football game is played and there's no commercials, there's no breaks, it continues to go, the fans are screaming, they're standing, they're going crazy for all that period of time. How have you taken lessons from there or taken lessons from Fenway and tried to merge them together? What have been the best practices that have come out of of those two uh, uh, properties? Well, it's a great question. And they're, they are uh, so different in terms of the structure of the league. Of course, in baseball, you're a franchise owner, one of 30, and you're part of a, a larger industry and, and, and a unit with certain rules and geographic restrictions when it comes to marketing and sales rights. Whereas in Liverpool, you obviously own a club um, and you have worldwide rights to, to market and sell and, and run activities uh, to the benefit of your club in terms of searching for players and the like. So very, very different structures. But the best practices, I would say, we've learned is that at, at the end of the day, we have to continue to invest into the playing squad on the on the pitch, on the field uh, here in North America, uh, because we do have, you mentioned it at the outset of the question, the most passionate, loyal supporter base. Uh, and if you're honest with them and you tell them exactly what you're doing and, and you show them the commitment to winning, I mean, look, John Henry and Tom Warner and Mike Gordon, these guys have won four World Series championships in Boston. They're hungry for more. They've won a Premier League title, uh, a Champions League title, many domestic trophies. They're hungry for more. So th that is the, the, the most important thing, continuing to make sure you're putting a great product on the field so the supporters and the fans um, can really get behind you. Now, when we don't do that, because we've obviously had some difficult seasons they let you know about it, you hear about it, and they're going to hold you accountable. What we're trying to do is take that approach, running a great operation, sporting operation, a great business operation, and now we'd like to take that approach to, to new and different sports uh, and continue to build this enterprise as we go forward. Easy to say, more difficult to do, uh, but given the experience, given the capital, given our investors that we have, we're really optimistic about, about the road ahead and the sports industry in general. These assets rarely trade hands. There's a tremendous 
uh, inherent intrinsic value uh, with the types of recurring revenues and the scarcity, frankly, make these assets very, very valuable. And we're excited to see uh, if, if we're going to be able to grow Fenway Sports Group and uh, find championships in, in new and different leagues. Haven't been a guest of yours at Fenway. It's just a unique experience in terms of what you do from the standpoint of making the crowd really part of the activity. I mean, adding the seats over the scoreboard, you've left the ballpark, you've uh, intact, but you've made all these modifications that continue to enhance uh, the product and enhance the experience. Well, it's a it's a great point. And I think from from John Henry's experience, he, he started as an LP in the Yankees and then he went and became the control owner at the Florida Marlins. And then, of course, came to Boston and then, and then Liverpool and the other activities. Tom Werner started in San Diego, saw what was happening at Jack Murphy Stadium. And of course, Larry Lucchino started his career with the Redskins and then the Baltimore Orioles and was involved in Camden Yards. And I mention all that because given their collective experiences, they put such a priority on the venues that we own and operate, whether it's Anfield or Fenway Park. And our group has invested literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to preserve, protect, expand, enhance the venues in which we operate. And that gives our fans uh, something to uh, experience that they've never had before, whether it's seats above the Green Monster, as you say, or the right field roof deck or dugout seats, new neighborhoods in and around Fenway Park for food and beverage premium offerings. And, and we've done the same at Anfield. We are now largely done on the inside of the envelope of our, of our venues. And we're spending, and I'm spending a lot of my time on the real estate development outside of our venues to make our, our venues a, a part of the larger neighborhood, 365 day a year uh, activity. In Boston specifically, just yesterday, we topped off a new 5,500 person live music venue that we're building. Uh, it's about a $150 million project uh, in partnership with Live Nation. So very excited about that. Um, over in, in Liverpool, we're building a new uh, Anfield Road project. So lots going on uh, to make the venues the very best they can be to ensure our fans have just a great experience. What do you look at at this point in your career, the two or three things you're the proudest of achieving? Well, I, I am very, very proud. You've known me a long time, Jed. I've gotten to know you. I, I think the most important thing is the relationships, number one, above all else. Um, I hope that I've treated people uh, the way I would like to be treated with openness, with honesty, with candor. Um, and there's nothing more important than relationships in, in each and everything we do. Um, so that is probably what I'm, what I'm most proud of. And then the second is to be able to uh, be a part of this company, which, as you said, is now a, a global uh, sports uh, conglomerate with interests all over the world. But to be able to stay uh, in Boston and stay connected to my family and, and, and my parents and uh, really share the experiences um, 
with friends and family uh, here in Boston has been magical. Obviously, uh, all, all good things come to an end. So at some point, Fenway Sports Group, you know, may take us to a different part of the world. Uh, but for now, being able to, to, to be here in Boston and, and share those uh, exciting championships with members of, of my family uh, here, here locally has been great. Um, and then third, I, I would say, uh, would be, would be the, the, the championships because look at the end of the day, the bet you know better than anyone, given what you've done in your career, winning championships is what it's all about. I mean, we are here to win, and that really drives us each and every day. So when I have a chance to look at World Series trophies in the halls of Fenway Park or Champions League trophies in Anfield, it, I, I feel very, very blessed that I've been a, a part of an organization that has delivered for, for its fans. Huge part, the human touch, as you described it. It's incredible. It's incredible that you've been able to join us today. So really appreciate you taking time and sharing your insights and feelings and, and philosophy. So thanks again, Sam. Jed, it's always great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Excellent.